You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. All right, our sermon text is Luke 15, 1 to 32. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine Righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. He also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country, where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, I'll go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers." So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of his servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the calf, the fattened calf, because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you have never given me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, He said to him, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
This is God's word. Well, like Micah, I'm glad to be part of the B team. It's okay. It's all good. If you like the uh, a high school athlete, he says, "Put me in, coach. Put me in." <clears throat> I'm always glad to be able to have, take this opportunity, and glad again this morning to be able to come and open the Word with you today. It's a joy and a privilege. Um, and if you're not already there, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. And yeah, as uh, as Micah and Aaron mentioned, we're starting a summer series on the. The, uh, the parables of Jesus. Uh, I'm sure we're not going to get to all of them, but many of them will be familiar. Some of them may be a little bit more obscure. I'm not sure who is picking what parables and what we'll cover over the course of the summer. But I have the privilege of opening to a, a pretty familiar one, and I'm looking forward to this time together in God's Word with you. But by, by way of introduction to the parables, you know, the, uh, the parables, of course, were uh, a very common teaching tool of Jesus. Uh, he used common everyday uh, objects and, uh, and contexts and situations to, to be able to use them as uh, teaching opportunities. Uh, what is a parable? A parable is a figurative, uh, literary, or rhetorical device. Uh, we can think of it as an extended metaphor uh, that uses familiar images to stir the imagination as it points us to a particular central spiritual truth. They are interestingly meant to both comfort and confront. Uh, an interesting thing that, that is the, the purpose of the parables are not only meant to clarify truth, but at times, as Jesus makes clear, as he explains to his disciples on at least one occasion when they came to him and said, Jesus, why do you speak to us in parables? He said to them, in his response to them, it makes it clear that he's teaching them and wanting to clarify spiritual truth, but knowing also that at the same time, for some, it will obscure truth. It reveals the heart of the, of the listener as it does so. <clears throat> and if you're puzzled with that, I think it's maybe a little bit similar, if you will, to um, though it's not quite a, a parable. It's Jesus is using figurative language in John chapter 6 when he starts talking about he who, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Uh, and, and as Jesus' crowds are there, these are the people to whom he has fed, the, uh, fed with the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes. And these are the ones who are coming wanting to get more from Jesus. And, and Jesus starts talking to them in, in this odd language and it's hard for them. And, and if you read John chapter 6, uh, Jesus, or uh, John points out that, that many were hearing this and he says, this is hard to understand. And uh, shortly after that, John writes that because of this, many people stopped following Jesus. Why is that? Because this figurative language, and in our case here, the parables, it reveals the condition of the heart. For those who are open-minded and desire truly to learn and to, to know Jesus and to know the Lord and to be drawn more into relationship with him, it will draw us to seek the truth. For those whose hearts are already cold and hardened, it kind of leaves the, has the opposite effect. It leaves them even more hardened and say, yeah, I just don't get it. Forget, forget this guy. 
parables have uh, primarily three themes. We can, in the in the broadest of strokes, we could think of and of uh, placing the various pro- uh, parables into three categories. We will come to some parables that ha- speak of the surprising arrival of God's kingdom, that Jesus Himself is there to inaugurate. So we'll read uh, perhaps of some of the parables of the yeast or of the four soils, the mustard seed and the treasure and the pearl that speak of that, that surprising arrival of the kingdom of God that Jesus comes to, to offer. There are other parables that speak of, uh, of particular warnings about rejecting and not being ready for God's kingdom. It is a, a warning indeed to be careful that you do not reject and that you are indeed ready for the coming of God's kingdom as it is offered by Jesus. And so we have parables such as the wedding banquet, the ten virgins, the sheep and the goats, the servants and the talents, and, and even the, the two men, one who built his house on the rock and one who built his house on the sand. Or as in our case here this morning, in the parable of the prodigal son, that we might put that in the, the category of parables that speak of the upside down nature of God's kingdom in contrast to the to the world or the religious structures of the day parables such as the unforgiving servant the rich man and Lazarus or again our today's parable of the lost sheep coin and son today our central theme of this parable has to do with that of grace grace That's what we're going to be thinking about here this morning. Grace, of course, is something that is often extolled, but uh, seldom understood, let alone displayed. We see this pretty often today. You know, people extol the need for so-called tolerance, if you will, right? We might even say grace, and yet severe gracelessness is often demonstrated when viewpoints other than your own are expressed, right? And, of course, the church, Christians, are not immune to this. Um, I might have put a, on the screen a, an, an, a cartoon that I have somewhere in my files of uh, two men who are walking along the road and uh, presumably to church, which is in the background. And uh, the one is saying to the other that he is, uh, I assume, invited to come to church with him. And he says, our church's distinctive is to be a church of grace. And then anyone who can't adhere to that, we simply ask them to leave. But that's often the case, isn't it? I bet some of you have known Christians, professing Christians, who are likely perhaps one of the reasons why more people are not more interested in Jesus. Insulting and unkind, joyless Christians who say that they're marching to Zion and love the promises of God and yet go around looking like they're sucking on a lemon all their lives. Christians who are quick with their lists of do's and don'ts and quick to judge others when they don't particularly fit their, their mold of what their brand of Christianity is. As Aaron said, we see this maybe particularly in social media. The backdrop of this message, I think, on the parables, thinking about this idea of grace, Kind of like this, this backdrop, it's always there, but we're not drawing, drawing our attention to it. Kind of behind us and looking over our shoulder as we look into our text here this morning, what I ask you to keep in mind in the, in the background of your mind is Peter's command 
the Lord's command to us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, where we read, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is a command. So in the background, looming over our heads as we look into our text here today, keep this in mind that this is a command to grow in the grace and the knowledge. It's one thing to grow in the knowledge of, of God. I think we, we probably have a pretty good understanding of what that means, but what does it mean? What does it look like? How do we grow in grace? So my desire for us this morning is that we understand that if we are to grow in grace, we must first learn ourselves to drink deeper at the fountain of God's grace. Finding our own thirst satisfied and then offering that same cup to others. And friends, it it must be the church, right? It must be the church. This is why this message is so important. Where else will the world find grace? The church is God's primary means to portray and to convey the grace of God to a graceless world. So the 30,000 foot level idea of this message here today is that my desire today is that by looking at this very familiar passage of scripture, that we will grow in grace by better understanding, receiving, and extending God's lavish grace. We need to understand with our minds and receive with our hearts and extend then with our hands God's lavish grace. So this is going to be one of those uh, cornflakes, Kellogg's cornflakes sermons, right? Yeah, where we need to ask the Lord to help us to hear it again for the first time, as familiar as it is. So let's pray together. God, our Father, I pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, that you would give us what we are not, that you would make us. Make us more like Jesus, Father, as a result of our time spent looking at him, looking at your portrait of grace in the teaching of Jesus himself, the personification of grace, your demonstration of grace to us, your gift of grace. And may we become more graceful Put to death any gracelessness that resides within our hearts, O God, this morning as a result of our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we begin with, uh, as, <clears throat> excuse me, as the chapter 15 opens, what I might call the, par- the prologue and the purpose of this parable. Uh, Luke begins this account with the fact that identifying the fact that Jesus' popularity has grown among the disenfranchised who are being welcomed by Jesus. Luke describes two groups of people here. The tax collectors, you know, what do we know about them? We know that they were a despised group of people. They were uh, entrusted by the Roman authorities to collect the taxes from the people. And so they would do that, uh, and, but they would uh, charge these exorbitant fees and they could 
by Rome's permission, they could charge whatever fees they wanted to. And some of them, they were indeed, they were just milking the people for all they were worth. They collected the taxes and then their fees for doing so, which they would then pocket and they became very wealthy as a result. But tax collectors and sinners, uh, it's, it's interesting in the, uh, one of the earlier versions of the NIV, I think in the 1984 version of the NIV, you'll, you'll find that sinners is actually put in quotes. Uh, we read that uh, the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus. And I, I, I think that was an interesting decision on their part. I don't think uh, the, the most recent edition of the NIV uh, continued that or maintained that. But I think probably their intent in doing so was to indicate and to demonstrate that 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 was not Luke's own description of them. It was probably that of the Pharisees, which we see in the very next verse, as the Pharisees are complaining, which we'll come to here in a moment, that he welcomes these sinners. But these are ungodly, irreligious people. That's the way I'm going to be referring to them here this morning. They're ungodly and irreligious people. And Luke tells us that Jesus welcomed them. Another translation says he received them. And as the Pharisees point out, he ate with them. To eat with someone in the day, you probably recognize, uh, you may know, that was, was one of the highest forms of, of table fellowship, rec- representing hospitality and acceptance and fellowship. Acceptance. <clears throat> Jesus welcomed them by accepting their invitations to go and feast with them. Jesus was not put off by these ungodly people who took an interest in hearing about God. He did not choose to put distance between him and them. Interesting, I, I even just noted, uh, noticed, I think uh, this morning as I was reviewing uh, the text, I just looked back to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, interestingly, at the very beginning of chapter 14, Jesus goes and accepts an invitation to dinner by the Pharisees, by one of the leading Pharisees, in fact. So Jesus was willing to come and associate and fellowship with anyone. Of course, the Pharisees weren't inviting Jesus to into their, their warm embrace of table fellowship. They were there, as it says in chapter 14, because they were watching him closely. That was an interrogation. That wasn't a, a Jesus, we like you. Come, come have dinner with us. We want to get to know you better. Now, Jesus welcomed irreligious people. And let's not be too quick to race past this very important point here at the very beginning. How do you feel when you are around tax collectors and sinners? Now, I know how we all feel about the IRS. We're not talking about that, of course, right? Uh, How do you feel when you are around irreligious and ungodly people? Are you patient and compassionate toward them? Or are you more disgusted and you can't get away fast enough like the Pharisees were? Would irreligious people even know that they would be welcomed by you? I think these are important questions and they are central to what we are studying here this morning. Jesus welcomed them, of course, and uh, that is much to the chagrin of the religious elite. These Pharisees, even though they knew that they should have known that their own reception of the grace of God and their privileged position was meant to drive them to reach out to others. And hence, in fact, just three chapters earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus gives us these familiar words, to whom much is given, much shall be required. 
and the Pharisees fell short in this very thing. So this is the setting. This is uh, the setting of, and the context of the parable, but it's also the purpose. It's the very purpose for the parable that follows, and it's what drives it. It's what prompts Jesus to teach this parable. Note the, the first word in verse 3, so or therefore, because of this very fact that the Pharisees were grumbling and complaining, Jesus launches into this parable. Jesus has something to say and a point to make to the Pharisees, but also to the Pharisee and each one of us. And so we come to the parable proper in three parts. Uh, Note, by the way, it's a singular. Jesus told them this parable, it's a singular parable. I think each of these next three scenes are meant all to be taken together. We come first to the parable of the lost sheep. One of 99 is lost, and Jesus offers this, it's a rhetorical question, I don't think it's meant to truly be answered. Jesus knows that his premise is accepted when he asks, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? He knows that everyone would agree. Well, yes, of course. Of course a good shepherd would do that. And of course, so he goes off and he, he seeks for that sheep and, and he finds it. And what happens when he finds it? There's evidence here now of the first prayer chain in Jesus' day. That prayer chains really did exist because he comes home and he, he yells out. He calls all of his friends. He says, uh, rejoice with me. He calls all of his neighbors together saying, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. He activate, he hit, that implies he had already activated that prayer chain and he had gone out and said, hey, pray for me, I can't find my sheep. And he goes out and he reports the, the good news that it's found. It's interesting in this one and also in the following account, in the following scene, more words are given to describe the rejoicing in heaven than of, the, of that which was lost and the circumstances behind it. It demonstrates a priority that is given to God to the saving of one who is lost and is of great value. No, this shepherd didn't think, well, I still have 99 left. No, he went out and seeking and to find it. And he brings it home and he rejoices. And the second scene is very similar. It's a parable of uh, the story of the lost coin. Parallel to the first, but it highlights something of even yet greater value. The ratio drops from 1 out of 99 to 1 out of 10. A drachma was uh, the coin that is indicated. The drachma, this coin that was lost, was equivalent to a day's wages. And I think what we find here in in this second scene, in this story of the lost coin, it highlights that there are three comparisons and distinctives to the first scene, and and, and it sets the pattern which is to follow in our more familiar story of the lost son. First, something of great value is lost. But again, it's now no longer one out of 99, it's one out of 10. Something of great value is lost first. Secondly, an earnest search is made. Right? Though there does seem to be a greater emphasis even on the thoroughness of the search in this second one. The woman sweeps the whole, she, she basically upturns her home as she's looking for this lost coin. Something of value is lost, the earnest search is made, 
And the third point of comparison is that the great joy, once again, that is common to both when they find that which is lost. So great that the owners both desire to share that joy with others. It's not enough just to be glad and to be able to sit down and say, oh, I'm so glad. No, that joy has to be shared and expressed and and other people invited into that joy. That prayer chain, once again, is activated as as people are, are, and I think it's the language there that it's used is they call their friends together. I think the idea is that they come together to celebrate that it's like a party. Both draw the explicit comparison to the joy in heaven over the repentance of one sinner. So this idea of rejoicing is one of the central points that Jesus is making. But I do want to ask before we go on, who is it that's rejoicing? Who is rejoicing? In verse 10, we read that there is joy in the presence of God. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels, rather. There is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. That language indicates to me that it's not the angels. We, we tend to think, you know, the angels in heaven rejoice when someone comes in repentance and faith to Christ. But the joy is in the presence of the angels. What that says to me is that God is the one who is rejoicing. God is the one who is rejoicing. It does not explicitly say the angels are rejoicing. It doesn't say that uh, there is joy among the angels or that the angels rejoiced. But grammatically, I think it's more likely that God is the one who is rejoicing. It's consistent with what we see next in, in the parable of the prodigal son. It's consistent with other places in Scripture, such as Zephaniah 3.17. Even in the Old Testament, we see the rejoicing of God The Lord your God is in your midst, Zephaniah writes. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God exults over his children, over sinners who repent, not just with singing. God belts out the songs with loud singing in the joy that he has when one sinner repents. Is this the image of God in your mind today, this morning, friends? Is this the image that comes to your mind when you think of God and how he thinks of you? Well, each of these next three points of comparison are shared in the final story that, again, are collectively, I meant, I believe are meant to be seen as one. And it's what I'm actually going to call the parable of the three prodigals. Yes, you heard that right, the parable of the three prodigals. Not one, not two. I believe there are three. I want us to rethink how we see this parable. This is where hearing it again for the first time maybe comes in, right? The parable of the three prodigals. What do I mean by that? Well, first we have to then, of course, uh, it begs the definition of the term prodigal. What does prodigal mean? I always used to think, as perhaps some of you, that prodigal meant, carried mostly the connotation of one who wanders away, just one who, who runs and flees away. 
And that can be part of the idea, but that's not really the primary understanding of the word prodigal. It's not primarily the idea of wanderer. It's not even primarily the idea of wasteful, although it can mean that. Really at the heart of what the word prodigal means is extravagant or lavishly abundant. Only sometimes with the connotations of of recklessness or wastefulness. And so I think that's probably where I forget who the, uh, the song artist is, or the Christian music artist is, who, you know, that, that, the reckless love of God. I don't know what you think of that song, but, but there is something to be said about this idea of the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. I, I would maybe agree with you if maybe a little bit, not too comfortable calling God's love reckless, but if we're careful with what we mean by that, I think it can fit. So let's consider three prodigals. We start off with uh, what I'll call the proverbial prodigal. This is the one we always think of. This proverbial prodigal, the one who, who runs and flees and takes his father's inheritance, is extravagant. He's lavishly abundant in his rebellion, in his disrespect, in his self-centeredness. It starts with this restless son, a disrespectful son, who comes with an insulting request of his father. Uh, It was technically not really improper, though practically unusual. In his request of his father, which uh, uh, of asking for his share of the estate, um, usually the the Uh, inheritance is of course divided and distributed only when the father becomes incapacitated or dies so what essentially then does that imply about what the son is asking of his father he's saying dad I, I, I basically just wish you were dead I can't wait for you to die so so give me my share of the inheritance now so he takes it and he leaves here's our first connection with the first two scenes the first two stories For the father, something of great value is lost. But now the ratio is even diminished even more. It's it's one of greater magnitude, maybe I I should say. It's not just one in 99, not just one of 10. It's one of two. The father loses one of his two sons. And of course, he goes off, and we know the story. He squanders that inheritance in foolish living. The ESV says reckless living. Uh, NASB says loose living, wild living is another translation. The brother, the elder brother later assumes that he's squandered his wealth in part by hiring prostitutes. We don't know if that's true or not, but we get the picture. He's, uh, he's, he's just involved in riotous, unrestrained living, just trying to, to meet uh, every whim and desire that would possibly come to his mind and the result of course is that he squanders it it's not a bottomless barrel of wealth that he's given and he's evidently not doing anything to try to steward that money and it comes to an end and he's left in the field with the pigs to the point where he is even desiring their food (laughs) he could stoop no lower as a Jew Jesus' original hearers would have recoiled at this. But there amongst the pigs, 
wanting to eat the husks that the pigs were eating, we read that the son came to himself. Now the translation says he came to his senses. And I like how the ESV says it rather than uh, I think the the CSB says, um, uh, sorry, I I didn't make, where's the uh, the verse? 17, thank you. Here I am, I'll get up and go, it says. That's what I was looking for, sorry. I I will arise and go, the son says. This is a good picture of repentance, and it's a picture of all of us and what is required in order to find the grace and mercy of God. To honestly own your condition. One has to wonder how many times this son recognized the direction that his life was going, and yet he still continued to live on in denial until he finally does really reach the bottom. But there must be an honest owning of our condition. Secondly, there must be a recognition of the place, of of the one place that we have left to turn, and that is to God. And that I will indeed get up, I will arise, and I will go. And then there must be the actual humbling of ourselves to come, to do it, to come to God then with empty hands, pleading for nothing but mercy. He came to his senses, we read in verse 17, and he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. He had nothing. And he says, I know what I will say to my father. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer even worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I love, I love contrasting what the son says here in the two requests that he anticipates making of the father. At the beginning of the chapter, what does he say? Father, give me my share of my inheritance. He's demanding his rights. Give me gives way now to make me. The give me demanding of my rights gives way to the father, make me. Make me just a servant. Make me one who is unworthy. I know I am worthy. Make me just someone who is able to take the scraps from your table. That's the proverbial prodigal. But we're introduced then to the prodigal party-giving papa. Oh, this is great, isn't it? How, but how is, how is the, the uh, papa, how is the father prodigal? Well, he's prodigal in his extravagant, compassionate mercy. He lavishly bestows his compassion and mercy and love and grace onto his son, holding nothing back. We read, as we read the account, it's clear that the father had been looking, and here's the second point of comparison to the earlier stories. It's very clear that the father is every day has been, he's getting up and he's looking off into the horizon, looking to see if his son is going to return. And sure enough, the day comes when he gets up and he looks out his window and off in the distance he sees his son coming. He had been waiting. He had been looking. He had been yearning. He had been praying. And the day arrives. And when he saw him, 
He had compassion. And he runs. I think that's an, that's an important detail here, that, that he runs. It, was, it would have been considered very undignified for a presumably middle-aged man in Jesus' day to run. Someone of the stature that this man presumably had in the community. That was an undignified, considered an, an undignified thing to do. But oh, he gathers up his robe and he runs after his son. And when he gets to him, he hugs him, he kisses him. And the word that is used there is, is he, he, he smothers his son with kisses. <laughs> he wouldn't even let his son finish his rehearsed speech. You know, his son has been rehearsing his speech and mulling it over as he's on his way back to his father and he doesn't even let him finish. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, no, stop. Just stop right there. And he holds nothing back. Bring out the robe, the ring, and the sandals, all of which would have been recognized as as a reinstatement of the son's honor and his privileged position as he welcomes him back. He had already given the son so much when he sent him on his way with that money. But clearly the father's gifts were not exhausted. And if that weren't enough, here's our third point of comparison to the earlier stories. The father breaks out in a party. He says, we've got to celebrate. And he holds a feast, and and there are no holds barred. He holds nothing back. He holds this feast, this banquet party that clearly is not limited to to the family and to the household. He invites other people to this party. The father not only blots out the past of the son as he embraces him and welcomes him back, he restores the son to a new future with status and power. And hope. The best our own efforts or those of our worldly self-help approaches can do in, in fixing our lives up, the best these approaches can do is only to clean our dirty clothes and wash our face. But the Father does so much more. And he declares that which was dead is now alive. That which was lost is found explicitly connecting to again to each of the earlier stories the sheep was presumed to be dead the coin was lost the son is both made alive and is found and this of course is our gospel connection this is a picture of our salvation if you are not a christian here this morning this is a picture of the repentance that needs to begin right here the repentance that comes and the grace that is found when we come in repentance. Repentance is a prerequisite to being accepted by God, not just tacking God onto your life. God is longing for you to return, and he will receive you because of what Christ has done. When we humble ourselves, own our condition, and turn to God. What, Christ, what happened to Christ is the reverse of what happened to the Son in this parable, isn't it? Jesus removed his garments of praise and equality with the Father, and he humbled himself to take on our tattered and filthy rags to become sin on our behalf. 
as he dies on the cross. Salvation is compressed here. There's nothing of substitution or of God's wrath. That's not the main point. The main point that we have here in the gospel picture of the sons receiving, being received by the Father, that is the main point. Friends, if you are not a Christian, assess your life and come. If you are a Christian, this is an invitation here this morning as we pause before we finish this parable to be amazed again at God's amazing, extravagant grace. How far away we once were when our sins had separated us from God. And to be reminded that God held nothing back. Paul writes in Romans 8, that God did not spare even his own son, but offered him up for us all. And so how will he not also with us grant us all things? But we must also remember this in our relationships with our non-religious friends and neighbors. This grace that we have received from God informs our prayers for them, that we pray for them to come to their senses. We can't manipulate them into the, into the kingdom. And yes, even if it means recognizing that they need to come to the end of their rope and that that is God's doing, that we cannot do. But what we can do is to display God's grace as we call others to come home, to come. And this is where Most people end the story, but this is what catapults us into the last part of this parable. And this is really the focus of the parable. As we come to the proud, persistent prodigal. And this is where Jesus introduces something new. This is where Jesus breaks the pattern of the earlier scenes of the story. There is no parallel to what follows in this persistent prodigal in the earlier two scenes. And because of that, we are called then to pay particular attention to what Jesus is saying. It draws our attention to the main point that Jesus wants to make. We don't get the whole point of the parable if we stop with the story of the younger brother. It is the contrast that makes the whole point of the story and connects it to the very accusations that were leveled against Jesus by the Pharisees. And it's the central reason for Jesus telling the story in the first place. The elder brother is in the the field. He comes approaching home and he hears the celebration going on and he asks a servant as to what's happening. And he hears that the son has returned, the prodigal has returned, and he wants nothing to do with it. Jesus is focusing our attention on the fact that the scribes and Pharisees had had rejected what seemed to them the flamboyant grace of Jesus and the manner in which he associated with sinners. And so the parable climaxes with the encounter of the elder son, representing the scribes and the Pharisees, resenting the prodigal grace of God while they took pride in their refusal to engage in the prodigal sin of the irreligious sinners to whom Jesus said he had come. And note, by the way, that the father 
goes out to this son too. The father goes out to the son and inviting him. He's coaxing him, pleading with him to come and to change his heart, to change his attitude. He didn't go out and scold him and he said, you foolish, no good son, get in here and celebrate with us. (laughs) No. He pleads, earnestly pleads with the elder brother. How is this elder brother prodigal? He's prodigal. He is extravagant in his self-centeredness. He is extravagant in his disgust for both his brother and his father. As he says to his father, look, these many years I have served you. What, what kind of language is that, by the way? Do you, it's pride, yeah, it, it's pride, but I think it also it uses language that is more descriptive of a servant than a son. Suggests that he was serving his father not so much out of love, but out of duty and a desire for reward. This son had come to value duty over devotion. He was valuing the rules and reward over the relationship that the father wanted to have with this son. Someone has said, there is a kind of righteousness that God hates. And that is exhibited here in the elder son. This righteousness clinging to duty, proud that he's towing the line, doing what is expected, but all out of pride, all out of legalism, all out of duty. If our service of Christ develops into a service from a sense of duty or obligation, soon to follow will be a sense of rights, of what I deserve, especially when we compare ourselves to others, which is what the son is doing. You killed the fattened calf for him, and yet you never gave me something to celebrate with my friends with, to have a party. I think probably indicating that this has been a long, festering attitude and heart problem of this elder son. But again, relationship. I think the father clearly implied, did you ever ask? I would have been happy to give it to you. What does he say there at the end? You're always with me and everything I have is yours. All you needed to do is ask. The elder brother even says, refers to the son as this son of yours failing to acknowledge him as his own brother the father has to add that corrective back into the dialogue in verse 32 refers to him as your brother has come oh friends let's pause for a moment as we begin to tie this up and conclude our time in God's word Can we draw some lessons, grace lessons, of what it means to grow in grace? From the younger son, I think we can learn two things, that growing in grace means receiving grace, whether it's God's or others even, for what it is. It is an undeserved gift. Grace, by definition, is undeserved, and we receive that which God has to offer as something that we do not deserve. We come with empty hands before a holy and grace-filled God. Secondly, growing in grace means understanding that there's nothing I can do to make God love me any less than he already does. 
If you belong to the Lord, if you are a child of God, there is nothing that you can do. There is no place you can go that is so far that where God will love you any less than he already has done in manifesting that. He's already given you all that he has to give in giving us his son. In contrast, or in, in keeping with that, with, from the elder brother, not only is there nothing we can do to make God love us any less from the elder brother, I think we can l- learn that growing in grace means understanding there's nothing I can do to make God love me any more than he already does. He's already given all that he has. And secondly, growing in grace means that I serve God and others out of devotion rather than duty and valuing a relationship over the rewards or the rights that I might want to cling to, that I might demand. And from the Father, growing in grace means readily extending the gift of forgiveness freely, lavishly, with no strings attached. Someone has said that you can't grow in grace and be a scorekeeper. Are you trying to keep score in your relationships with others? Paul writes that we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. In the same way, unconditionally, with no strings attached. One author writes, I release my own right to get even and leave all issues of fairness for God to work out. I leave in God's hands the scales that must balance justice and mercy. That's a good word. And then from the father, and I think from the elder brother as well, we can learn that growing in grace means gladly portraying and extending the love of Christ even to irreligious people. And this brings it back to the heart of what this parable is meant to be, how it's meant to be taken by Jesus. As Jesus was driving this point home to the Pharisees. Extending grace to the least of us, to irreligious and ungodly people, without partiality, with the same grace that we have received from God. There is a welcoming, but that welcoming, I think, also needs to be portrayed with initiative. Jesus' welcoming of sinners was not passive. It was active. He took an active role in reaching out to embrace those who are willing to hear. <clears throat> I offer this uh, with a little bit of caution. I think maybe that might, we might want to be careful of just how far we take this, but <clears throat> it's convicting to my, to my heart. Someone once said, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. That's worth meditating on. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. To tie into the scripture that Aaron read earlier this morning, my heart for us this morning as we conclude is I want us to smell like Jesus. 
You know that the Bible tells us what Jesus smells like? We may not like what it says, right? <clears throat> In the passage that Aaron read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, my apologies, I forgot to update my, uh, my text into the CSB. I have the ESV that I'm reading from, but Paul writes, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. <clears throat> For we are the aroma of Christ. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? The implied answer is not us, it's Christ in us. Jesus smells like you, like me like all those who profess him as Lord and Savior, and we should smell like grace. The effect that fragrance has on others is not something, of course, that we can control. But we better be sure that it really is God's grace that others are smelling and not our own foolishness and sin. To the proverbial prodigal, the father's prodigal grace smelled like life. Renewal, hope, restoration. To the persistent prodigal, the father's prodigal grace smelled like death. In fact, it wasn't a fragrance at all. It was a stench. And it was a stench to the Pharisees that Jesus spoke this parable to. Jesus rebuked their prodigal self-righteous indignation. Friends, being the fragrance of Jesus and his grace requires that we abide in him, dwell in him, draw close to him. Like a man who leaves his beloved still bearing her fragrance on him because of the closeness that was experienced in their time spent together. It's often said of, of pastors that they need to smell like the sheep. <clears throat> that they're among the sheep and, and, and taking time with them. But, but the reverse is also true, that we need to smell like our shepherd. Are you still amazed, enthralled, and transfixed, captivated, and astonished by God and his grace? Only then will you begin to bear the fragrance of Jesus, beginning with one another, but then extending that and offering it to the world. Let's pray.